every dog that comes into this house teaches us something different. listening to the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host and resident dog mom, Erin Scott. Not only can a dog be your best friend, but I believe a dog can be a healer, a teacher, and an inspiration. I can't wait to share with you stories of how the love of a dog is changing our lives and changing the world. This is Believe in Dog. Welcome to episode 58 of the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host, Erin Scott, and thank you so much for being here today. I'm so excited for you to meet today's guests, Ron Danta and Danny Robert Shaw of Danny and Ron's Rescue. I first came to learn of Danny and Ron's Rescue probably about four or five years ago when their documentary Life in the Dog House first came out on Netflix. Of course, anytime there's something dog-related, shelter-related, rescue-related, I'm going to be watching it. And I really love the documentary. I'll have a link in the show notes for you so that you can find it. I think it's available to stream on Peacock and Tubi right now. And Life in the Doghouse is really cool. It's this great sort of day-in-the-life overview of, of what running their rescue is like. But today, we get to talk to Danny and Ron about their new book, Forever Home, how we turned our house into a haven for abandoned, abused, and misunderstood dogs and each other. And this is just such a phenomenal book. And it is really behind the scenes and a very vulnerable and open look at at all the struggles that Danny and Ron have faced in their lives, how their lives led them to each other, led to starting this rescue, the role of animals in their life, all of the unbelievable obstacles at times that they've had to overcome to get to where they are. And there's just story after story of of dogs that have come into their lives, of dogs they've helped find homes for, of dogs who have touched them in some way. And, you know, this is exactly what I'm all about, exactly what the Believe in Dog podcast is all about. Danny and Ron are just the epitome of opening their hearts and their homes to help as many dogs as possible. Sometimes they have upwards of 100 dogs living in their house at any one time, because with their rescue, they don't put dogs into a kennel or find foster homes. They take care of all of the dogs in their own home until they have a home for them. And since 2005, in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, Danny and Ron have now helped find homes for 14,000 dogs that have all come through their home. In fact, one of the questions I asked them about was about the toll that having all these dogs in their house has taken. So you'll hear about all of the, the different modifications that they've had to make to their home in order to accommodate this many dogs. Believe me, I can tell you the toll that two pit bulls can take on a house. And we'll hear about the role of Hurricane Katrina in helping Danny and Ron formalize the rescue efforts that, quite frankly, they had already been doing for many, many years before that. I learned that both Danny and Ron have their professional roots in the equestrian industry, and Danny is actually a a world-class hunter-jumper rider. Now, I will admit I had to go look up exactly what hunter-jumper meant, 
but it's basically like the show jumping where you'll see the horses that are trying to jump over the obstacles with the bars and you don't want their feet to knock into the bars. Danny is very modest during our interview, but my understanding is he's sort of like the Tom Brady of hunter jumper riders. So just keep that in mind when we're talking. Getting the chance to sit down with Danny and Ron was super special to me. And, you know, if you've ever wondered about what is the difference that just one person can make in the world or two people, look at all of the difference that they have made in the rescue dog community and in the world. And that's why I think it matters. That's why I think each and every one of us matters and how each and every one of our actions can help contribute to a better world, a world that's based more on love and taking actions out of love. I'm probably feeling a little extra cynical with all of the election commercials that have been going on lately. I will be extremely happy when this election season is over, let me tell you, because I get so beat down with hearing the constant negative ads and negative attack ads to other candidates. And honestly, you know, if we really want a better world, then we need more people like Danny and Ron. So let's get started. I can't wait for you to meet Ron Danta and Danny Robertshaw. I'm so excited to be here today with Danny and Ron of Danny and Ron's Rescue. Hello, how are you? We are good. We're doing well. Thank you. Very happy to be with you. I'm so excited. I have so much I want to talk to you about. Um, You just put out the book Forever Home, and I'm so excited for everyone to read it. Now, I always love to start out by asking about childhood experiences with animals and how that shaped you. For instance, I never had a dog until I was 25. I often joke that I was a reluctant dog owner because it was totally my husband's idea to get this dog. And it ended up completely changing my whole life, as you can imagine, that I'm now doing a podcast about dogs. (laughs) So Danny, do you want to start telling us about the role of dogs and also horses uh, in your early life? Well, when it really began, when I was tiny, tiny, my my mother's father, we called him Bumpa, he had a dairy farm, and I was infatuated with that. So from the time I could walk, I carried around a rubber moo cow, and that's all I was interested in. And then when we moved to the south with my dad's business, we uh, my sister started riding ponies for with a lady, and so then I changed from the cows to the ponies. Uh, or my love for them, even though I hadn't really ridden then. But meanwhile, we always had a little dog, and I, my first one was when I was near the first grade, and I just can't tell you what a companion he was, and so I, I can't ever imagine again living without one. As far as the horses go, I gradually, sort of by uh, accident, but ended up being able to go sit on a couple ponies and from that day forth, I never stopped riding my bicycle to that barn every single day and uh, and coming back. And so naturally it escalated in a way that no one ever dreamed would, it would. Yeah, my understanding is you're like kind of like the Michael Phelps, the Tom Brady of hunter-jumper riders. Well, whoever said that was very complimentary. <laughs> I'm, I'm nowhere near that. <laughs> That's very sweet. And so, Ron, how about you? You know, I grew up my first dog was named Sandy. He was a collie uh, that my parents got for my sister and I when we were real little. I think I was maybe two or three when we got our first dog. And as a child, you know, dad was a very good football player and sports player and all that stuff. And I had such a compassion for animals. I always was bringing home baby birds that fell out of nest and 
frogs and cats on the road and everything like that. So I think it was kind of a, mom and dad were a little fearful of what I would bring home. But when I was 16 and started, you know, driving, mom and dad said, okay, because I would go to the barn and everything like that. They said, you can go to the animal shelter and pick out your own personal dog. So that's when I got my first dog, Max, that I actually went to the shelter and picked him out. And um, even when I was in college, Max, if it was cool enough, used to ride in the car with me and I'd leave the windows down. And he was so smart that when he would see me walking from the campus to the parking lot, he would start leaning on the horn and honking the horn. So all the kids <laughs> always laughed how he knew knew it was time to go, go to the barn. So anyway, and I grew up um, across the street from us was a barn and all the kids in the neighborhood rode. So that's also how I kind of got started in horses also. And so you both actually ended up working in the equestrian industry, right? Yes, yeah, both. I mean, that's that's our both of our profession. You know, rescuing animals is kind of our sidekick. <laughs> it's really a full-time job also. I, I was kind of the kid who I just didn't think there was anything that couldn't be done with a horse or pony and uh, without any formal education, but I was... I was just brave enough. I was able to get them over jumps when they'd stop with their owners. Or, and a lot of people, you know, were so fearful of them. And I just thought every one of them was wonderful and the best in the world. And it never occurred to me that there were really talent differences or anything else. So naturally, as you grow up, you learn a lot more. And so you guys actually ended up meeting each other through the equestrian industry. We did. Um, I was already in the Carolinas for a long time. And then had started training for people in the Camden area, which is where we live now. And, uh, and then I, and Ron moved uh, from Chicago area. And then he started training people in, uh, in further West from, from where we are, but we met at, at a horse show. And, uh, and so then he asked me to ride professionally, a lot of the horses that some of his customers owned to help, help train them for them. So that began a relationship years previous to a real relationship. Right. So I really loved your book. And one of the things that I really loved about it was how how honest you are. And I, I feel like it's very brave to share about some of the more tumultuous personal experiences. Uh, your lives have been touched by, you know, by illnesses, by addiction and loved ones, by, you know, family, you know, tumultuous things, by losing family members. And, and that, like, my life has also been touched by all of these things, believe it or not, it's played out in very different ways. But I think it's so brave to share these experiences because they are somewhat universal experiences and also how animals help us get through all of these tough times in life. And I, I just think that so many people find comfort in animals when it feels like maybe the rest of their life is out of control or maybe when we feel like we don't belong or, or struggling with our own identity in some ways. And so... I think that so many people are gonna gonna love the book for that reason, and uh, it's such a strength and a, a bravery to to talk about it, to bring light to the the tough times, and I hope that it will encourage others to to talk about it as well. Well, thank you. The, the uh, you know I think we both learned early on that that the animals have empathy, and uh, and they have I don't want to use unconditional love as the only way to put it, but. Uh, but they have an undying dedication to you. And 
nothing you can do can thwart it. And I think sometimes that is what pulls us through. It's uh, when you feel like you have no one and you feel all alone, um, you, you know, you look around or look down a little bit and you realize that's not at all the case. Right. And so it sounds like you guys were doing, I always call it kind of informal rescue, which again, my life has been touched by experiences of those often surprise experiences um, of informal rescue. And it looks like one of the first big uh, experiences you had were the, the 27 dogs that came from the shelter. Do you want to tell us how that came about? Yes, that was in 1999. Our county shelter here was in horrific condition. I mean, the dogs were were basically being abused in the conditions they lived in. And so there's a, a lady named Judy Teal who was in the area that was a big humanitarian. And Judy came up with a lot of money and asked the county for her and Sharon Jones to go in and take over the shelter. And there was so much parvo and bacteria and everything like that, that the shelter really needed to be completely cleared out and then sanitized because the dogs and the cats were so sick. And so they, we saw it on TV that they made a plea for people to please come and try to get these animals out because the shelter had to be shut down and then sanitized and so we saw it, and so actually we, we had known Sharon Jones already, who became the director there, and so we called her and just said, you know, we heard by Friday, you know, at 4 o'clock, you know, anything that didn't get out of there was going to have to be euthanized. So we went down with the horse trailer and wound up getting all of those dogs and puppies, and we really had no means to house all of them, so we had to make all these makeshift pens and that kind of kind of got the wheels started for us of figuring out how we could do bigger rescues. But then when Hurricane Katrina hit, that really changed our lives because we wound up taking over 600 dogs from there. Um, and we were not a nonprofit at the time. So that was very, very costly um, taking out of our retirement funds to help fund all of that. So that is really what got the big wheels in motion for us as a rescue. There was a great uh, quote in the book about going from a pop and pop operation to, you know, a more formal rescue. And, and, and there was another quote that I love because I know so many people in the rescue world where it says, oh, we weren't considering what the future would look like. We were just trying to keep up with all these dogs that we brought in to our house. And I... I guess I see a lot of that in the rescue world where it's so just trying to keep up with the day to day that it's hard to kind of look at like, where's the organization going? How are we going to you know do things down the road? And I just thought that was such a, again, like so universal amongst anybody involved in rescue. Sometimes it's hard to see down the road when you're just focused on trying to take care of these dogs right now. Well, we, uh, we also, we wanted to share some of the, these stories because we had no idea that we ever were close to being qualified to become a 501c3 or a nonprofit. Um, we had no kennels. We um, had no real organization um, at the time. And, uh, but we couldn't stop doing what we were doing. And, uh, and there's so many people out there that, that are trying to do some of what we started doing and, uh, and to get into it. And we want people to know this, you know, if they persist and, and, try really hard that they they actually can create something uh, out of all of this. And uh, 
but we did everything by trial and error and believe we we made plenty of errors so we're hoping some of what we can share uh, will prevent other people from going through some of the ups and downs that we've had to do. That was one of the things that also uh, stood out to me. I mean, you're keeping all the dogs in your home, and obviously this has taken a big toll on your house (laughs) and your home over the years. Can you tell us about some of the different modifications that you've made to your home over the years to accommodate the dogs? Well, our house has totally changed. Um, Kind of my therapy between horses and dogs, I love to cook, and so we used to have very big dinner parties here, and we've got a you know, very big formal dining room with a cathedral ceiling and everything. And that's the dogs basically take, you know, have taken over the house. You know, I have a teeny section in a cabinet that now has plates. I have a teeny section, you know, we can't entertain in the house anymore. And Danny and I sit at the island every night and get one little corner to eat on because the island is full of trays of all dog bowls. I mean, not long ago, we had over 160 dogs in the house. You know, every room in this house is just dogs everywhere. They're just roaming wherever they roam. So we kind of, we always keep saying we live in the dog's house. (laughs) I I kind of think the house is like a run-on sentence. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it sounded like you had to replace floors and give up your fireplace and... (laughs) Oh, we two uh, fireplaces. We did. I mean, we had Oriana rugs and we had oak floors down and had all those torn up and put stone floors down and the fireplaces, the dogs, for some reason, really, you know, we started putting dog beds in there and they just love to cuddle in there. And so that's kind of a safe haven for them. They really enjoy that. But, you know, they're on the couches, they're in the chairs, they're on our beds. And I mean, there's many nights you crawl into bed and there's 17 dogs on the bed, under the covers, on your head. And it's a, it's quite a battle, you know, when you have to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, then you've got to fight for a little territory to sleep in. (laughs) I mean, we have two dogs and and sometimes it's hard to find room on the bed. (laughs) Yeah, well, you should try 17. There's not a lot of room. (laughs) And then you get the old grumpy ones and you try to move them over and it's... And so you you had started to touch on about the role that Hurricane Katrina played in really formalizing, you know, your organization and and really changing your life to be like, oh, we're really doing this now. Can you tell us some more about how you found out about the situation with the dogs, how you decided to help? I I think a lot of us always feel like, well, I want to help, but I'm not sure what I can do and, and and I just love that you're like this is what we're doing and and I just I admire that that so much. Well, before we even got to that point, uh, because of the horse world business and stuff, we actually bought a little house in Florida um, because we were there for a few months in the winter with the horse shows, and so we were down just trying to we we didn't have enough money to remodel it, but we were trying to redo it a little bit and furnish it a little bit and do a little painting and stuff. And that's when Hurricane Katrina hit. So our, uh, you know, our first efforts were when we realized all these people were being shipped all over the place just to get them out of flood zones and where their homes had been ruined. And so several came to the Delray training track, which is just 15 minutes from where we live. And so we rallied and got a whole lot of friends to help pitch in and we bought about i think i don't remember exactly 65 or so little televisions because all they wanted to do was be able to connect with home but no phone lines were working people didn't have houses 
Uh, the only thing they could do was get it from the news. And we also, of course, brought all these supplies that it turns out they had warehouses full of already. So we thought, I think on the humanitarian side, we've done all we can do. And so, of course, we thought about horses. And then we found, you know, we realized that certain people in different areas uh, were already really pitching in and helping that out. And we didn't have enough land to bring a bunch of horses from New Orleans to here, nor would people want them to go that way. So then we saw the dogs on the news and uh, and our hearts just fell out. And then we heard that these same, all these people, their dogs were not allowed to be saved along with them. And they were left in their homes or just left for their own fate. And that really crushed us because with all the dogs that we've had, we just couldn't imagine them all of a sudden the feeling they have ending up in a warehouse or having to swim to a rooftop or sitting in a tree and not knowing if anybody was ever going to be there for them again. So that that's just what really got us moving. And then we found out about the numbers of them. And then uh, some people who just kind of knew what we did casually called and said, anyway, you guys could help. And, uh, and it sort of started from there because uh, we did that. And the, the one thing we wanted to do, though, with, with the shelters and people involved, we didn't want to take people's dogs from the area. So all of the places that had dogs already stocked up that hadn't found homes um, in the shelters and, and rescues, we asked if we could get loads of those to get them out of there so that the dogs that were being captured and rounded up and found perhaps their owners might be able to come back and save them. Uh, we didn't want to be peddling people's dogs and, you know, bringing them out of state and them have nowhere to look. So we really tried hard to take the take the ones that were already homeless but were in places already to make room for the others. I mean, I think that's a real important piece for people to realize when we have national disasters, like we went to Louisiana when it flooded. You know, we always try to take dogs that were in the shelter before the disaster hit. Even when we, you know, when Houston had the horrible hurricane, the same thing. We said, we want your shelter dogs so that you can make room and take all the displaced dogs so that hopefully those owners can find their pets. And I think it's a big mistake when certain, some rescues or organizations go in and take all the displaced dogs. I mean, because those poor owners they don't have time to even look for their dog. They're just trying to survive at that moment. And so I think it's really important to think of clearing out shelters for those areas of dogs that have been there for a long time and make room for those so that people can come find their dogs. Yeah, that's a really good point. So what does it mean to be a Danny and Ron's dog? <laughs> well, I think, you know, it's very interesting. As, as we grew up in the horse world, a lot of people used to breed various breeds, corgis, dachshunds, greyhounds, yeah, not greyhounds, but whippets and different things and sell them as puppies at the horse shows. And through our organization, it's gotten to be as a lot of people, I mean, Georgina Bloomberg is one that, you know, said it's kind of a trend now to have a Danny and Ron's rescue dog. Um, I think people are becoming more and more aware of how much, you know, it is, they make such wonderful pets to adopt a rescue. Um, we have no problem with good breeders that breed, you know, golden retrievers, 
dachshunds or whatever, because good breeders really make you sign contracts and they want to know, you know, you can't breed this dog or if you do, they're the ones that choose it and, you know, showing them and so on and so forth. But it's the backyard breeders and the puppy mills that we are very much against. Um, we do a lot of puppy mill rescue. We do a lot of backyard rescue. We did one in Aiken, South Carolina that had 160 big breed doodle crosses. And I mean, they lived those massive breed dogs that weighed over a hundred pounds, eight of them, 10 of them would live in a pen that was six by six. And they were, we had to shear all of them down. They were, you know, covered in feces and urine and people just have no idea the front, you know, when you go to those places, all you see are those cute little puppies out front, but you have no idea what those breeding dogs go through. So, um, I don't know. One exciting thing for us is there's a pretty famous trainer and she used to breed whippets and dachshunds and all that stuff. And she came to us at one horse show and said, you know, I want to talk to you. And she said, I really don't like what you two are doing. And I said, why? And she said, well, I used to make a lot of money breeding my little dogs. And she said, now everybody just wants to adopt from you all. And I'm not being able to sell all of my puppies. And I said, well, you know what? That means our mission's working. Absolutely. <laughs> That's the biggest compliment you can yeah, get. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, you do take in a lot of dogs that are in rough shape and I was trying to unpack all of this for myself. Like first, I can't imagine like how difficult it is to see these dogs that are in such rough shape. And I guess I always try to focus on the fact that like, this is the best day of this dog's life because only, you know, it only gets better from here on out. Right. But how do you like take care of your own emotions and like your own self-care when you're seeing a lot of things that are probably very heartbreaking at times? I can't say that you outgrow it or you just, you know, look look by it rather than through it or into it. But we do know that once we commit to doing something, we have to stick by it. That's our promise to every dog. If it, if it becomes Danny and Ron's rescue dog, you're going to be treated as though you are, are our personal dogs and we'll do everything we can. And as long as they want to live, We'll do whatever we can to make it live, make him survive. You know, if, if they're at a point where they can't, then we want them to have the best way out of this world possible. But but we'll give any dog a chance that, that wants to have a chance. And, you know, just because it um, has a crushed pelvis or has to have a leg amputated or eye surgeries, uh, we've helped several dogs be able to see again that were totally blind. And so we're going to do whatever it takes to do it. And that's what makes it really difficult for us because a lot of that costs a lot more than just getting puppy shots. Um, and we don't let our dogs go anywhere until they've had their shots, till they're microchipped in our name forever because we have everybody on file that has ever gotten a dog from us. And so if that dog is lost and somebody sees our number calling them, they'll pick up the phone. But, you know, if they're on vacation and it's just – a random number from a veterinarian practice and they don't get the name, they're not going to answer those calls. But when our number comes up, they know it. And uh, so we can relocate dogs with their owners and we can try to ensure their safety for the rest of their lives. But we want to know, I mean, the reason the microchip really is in our name is because if that dog, you know, if my cell phone is the connection to all of our pet links and if we get called a second and a third time that that dog has been lost, 
it's time to come home to Danny and Ron's rescue. And also, you know, our contract reads, you can never give the dog away 10 years from now. If you can't keep the dog, we send transport. It comes back to us. Um, if you give the dog away without our permission, you know, and we vet the new person that's going to get it, you agree to pay us $5,000 and you will be sued. And in almost, we're getting very close to 14,000 dogs that we've adopted. We've only had to do legal process against one person that took a dog to a kill shelter. Oh, wow. Well, we're real strict about it. And our girls in the adoption department do an amazing vetting on each person. You know, we want them to have a loving home, but, you know, we realize sometimes people get into health issues and whatever, but we just want to have our dogs home because we do a lifetime promise. And just like the ones we bring in here that have behavioral problems or very strong, you know, medical issues, we guarantee them they can live here forever. Well, and we want every dog to be happy, you know, in their, in their life. And it's, uh, so if it's not working out and someone's not happy with the dog or they're not happy with their life or whatever, I don't know what better offer we could do than to say, we'll come get it. Right. And, uh, and we'll bring it back and we'll, if depending on the conditions, we'll try to find it a home that will last forever. Right. And if we don't find it, then it's lasts forever here. Do you have dogs that are your dogs or are they all part of the rescue and some of them just stay forever or how, how does that work? We have, we have several that, uh, five that we take to the horse shows that were rescue dogs that had uh, a lot of behavior problems and um, fear problems and through taking them on the golf cart, they've gotten social. And then we have a few other ones that are here at the dog house that will go to Florida with us that, you know, have medical or behavioral issues. So, I would say we probably have about eight that we kind of consider our own. And then we have a lot of dogs here that are considered sanctuary dogs that, you know, have serious medical problems, um, behavioral problems. And we just feel that uh, they've gotten so much security here that we couldn't pull the rug out from underneath them and send them, you know, send them to adoption because they, they really had a lot of trauma in their life. And he doesn't know it yet, but I'm working on one little, little dog that is kind of winning my heart over. So I've <laughs> got to get stronger because we really don't need to keep him. <laughs> but I'm working on my strength now. <laughs> so that was something else that came up through recurrent stories in, in your book. I was about... You know, having these dogs that have that are very fearful, you know, that are very shut down or not trusting of people. And and I actually have a, a dog like this, too. His name is Nino. And uh, he was a very, you know, had probably never lived in a house before. Anytime the furnace kicked on, he would hit the deck, you know, hit the ground. And, and he's like an 80 pound I always say he's an 80 pound pit bull. And most of that's in his head. You know, he has the giant head. And, and so, you know, it was a real process for us to work on gaining his trust and having him feel safe and secure in our home. And and now he loves my husband and I. He's very much in love with my husband, but he's very still, you know, standoffish with anybody else. And I I loved how much you shared uh about your approach to gaining trust with dogs. And and I and there was a word that was used, the word agency, about giving dogs some agency. You know, a lot of times when they've been through shelters or, you know, they're being handled in a way that they don't have any 
choice in. And, you know, that unless there's like a medical issue or a safety issue, you know, you'll let them come to you. And how much have you had to learn about dog behavior? Is that something you ever set out to learn? Is it something that just sort of came natural? You know, how, how do you work with dogs like this? That, that's something that we had to learn. Um, I mean, I think we both knew well enough early on not to go chasing a dog that's already running. I mean, how stupid are we to think we're going to catch it? Um, you know, all you do is chase them further and put more fear in them. So anytime we're working on a dog that's gotten away or is lost or has been astray in an area, we try to set it up where they get to see people just sit there and do nothing, you know, near where they where we dropped them some food and, and just let everything take its own time because until they decide that you're okay, it's not going to be okay. You can't make yourself okay for any dog in the world. Um, you have to allow them to like what you're doing and what you're representing to them and for them to feel secure. So that takes some time sometimes. And uh, a lot of times here at the house, I mean, because of the different rooms, what we call our kitchen dogs are dogs that we've gotten used to enough in some of the other rooms, and, uh, but they're not really out of their shell. And so we'll bring them into the kitchen, kitchen, which, well, of course, it has a fireplace, but it also has a, a doggy door to the outside where they can go out and play and mingle with the other dogs and stuff. But they come back and forth and in and out, and gradually they see other dogs getting excited every time you walk in the room or hanging around with somebody that's fixing the foods or getting the medicines ready, and they just sort of stand there and they start getting petted, and then you realize they're a little closer and a little closer. And they want to be like the other dogs in the end. And so eventually they come up to you. And once they start it, there's no going back usually. I love seeing how much dogs can learn from other dogs about trusting. <laughs> we do a lot from other dogs. And, and again, dogs know how to treat other dogs a lot better than people do. So they do learn so much from them, even you know, from the point of housebreaking to, to, um, to just being able to be loved. I mean, people need to realize in nature, coyotes, wolves, wild dogs, they all live in packs. And so that's why we have so much success is we get very strong pack leaders and those pack leaders in our different, the living room group or the, you know, the kitchen group or the queue room group and stuff, those pack leaders really, you know, have to be a positive energy dog. And those dogs can help those scared dogs so much. And a lot of times we'll actually tie them together. You know, the ones that want to shut down and just go in a corner and not come out or whatever and let the positive dog just lead them around. And um, it's, you know, it takes a lot of patience, but you have to realize that those dogs were traumatized. So you can't expect them to change overnight. Right. I, there's something I talk about on this podcast that comes up in a lot of different contexts is about like learning our dog's body language and learning how they're always communicating with each other. They're always communicating with us. And I know when I, there's a couple books that were really helpful for me. I mean, it literally like blew my mind open to, to start seeing, you know, how much they were communicating about, Oh, they do like this. They don't like this or, you know, just the, and it's very subtle sometimes. And so I, uh, I appreciate how much you illustrate that, 
you know, through through your books and through your stories as well that uh, I just feel like I wish all owners knew this. Like I, I'm always hoping we can help spread the word about how powerful it is to learn how our dogs are communicating with us. Well, that's one of the things, you know, that we tried to share in the book, just some of our experience, which, you know, we through time have just learned so much having that many dogs. Every dog that comes into this house teaches us something different. We all as humans never stop learning about animal communication because each dog is different. They all beat to a different drum. And so, you know, we always try at first to kind of sit back, let them figure out their way a little bit here in the house, and then they kind of tell us what they need. So I feel like we have to touch on the fact that it's kind of a miracle that Danny is sitting here with us today after everything you have been through <laughs> with your health. And um, I mean, I was trying, I couldn't even make a list of everything. I mean, the biggest being the aortic dissection, which is what killed John Ritter. And they said, maybe three to five years you'd be here, but it's like 16 years later now. And uh, and then you know, you've had surgeries and rheumatoid arthritis and and I, I think that it is somewhat of a universal experience for all of us that our dogs and our animals help us through these health issues. I uh, a couple years ago I was diagnosed with breast cancer, and you know I have a loving husband, I have a loving family, but it was really my dog Penny who kind of got me through that time. And uh, I remember saying when the doctor told me this, I was like, I don't have time for this. I got shit to do <laughs> was what I told them. And and I remember my mom kind of being like, what do you have to do? <laughs> and just how, you know, I wanted to be out there walking my dogs. I wanted, you know, everything to be okay. And that was, I was kind of holding that in my mind of like, I want to, you know, I have things I'm doing, you know, with, with my life. And I just, I thought it was really special to share uh, as much as you did just about all of these, these things. And, and how are you doing today? I'm doing, I'm doing very well. Thank you. I, you know, I, when I go to the doctors and stuff, I'll complain about something and they just look, you look terrific. <laughs> you have no right to complain about anything. <laughs> and, and I'm not really complaining, but I'm just, I'm trying to stay on top of any issues that might arise. I just, I want to, be proactive and you know with my health in that sense and uh and they just say you're just a miracle it's, i can't believe you're walking in here and and uh so don't don't worry about your problems right now you don't have any <laughs> you're alive so i'll take that <laughs> so one of the things that made me laugh in the book the hardest was ron the woman that cut you off in the parking lot. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was like the, took the parking space after I waited five minutes for it. <laughs> I got a real kick out of that. Uh, the other thing that was one of my the funniest things in the book also uh, was about the mouse that was living in your car. <laughs> You're like, I guess we just have a mouse in the car now. <laughs> that was an indoor mouse. Yeah, it started in the house, and then when Danny drove it down to let it out, it got out of the box and was loose in my car for a while. <laughs> but he wanted to turn them loose in 20 degree weather and they were caught in the house and I said you can't do that Ron. they've been living indoors you can't just take them out and put them out in 20 degrees so they had to have a little home for a little while until the weather broke <laughs> I just I appreciated that <laughs> <laughs> so with running a rescue 
two of the experiences that I have heard people involved in the rescue talk about that are the hardest and that you also touch on in the book is number one about choosing which dogs are going to come into the rescue. And then also, you know, a lot of people are don't want to foster because they feel like it's going to be too hard to say goodbye when the dog gets adopted out. And so I was just curious about about your thoughts on on that. And are those hard for you? Are they good problems? Or, or is that something that you carry around with you? I think they're hard problems because when we go to shelters and we know we only have so many open spaces in the house, you know, your first instinct is you want to take them all. So it's very hard looking, you know, at their faces and their eyes and saying, okay, you can come, you can come, but you can't come, you can't come. So it's very difficult. What Danny and I really try to do a lot is try to pick a lot that we think at that shelter are not adoptable. You know, the cute little fuzzy poodles and, you know, real cutesy little Disney dogs, those are going to get adopted very quickly. Puppies have a good chance, you know. I mean, what puppy isn't cute? You know, so we don't take a lot of puppies. We take a lot of elderly dogs, senior dogs. Um, I tell you, one of the hardest things we always see is so many people will take their 15-year-old dog, 14-year-old dog, and they want to trade them in for a puppy. And then that poor dog is down there shaking, trembling, because it's been a house dog for so long. And so we take a lot of senior dogs, and we take a lot of like what we consider non-adoptable dogs, because we feel hopefully we can change their life. And even like the senior dogs, if they have two months and we figure out we really can't adopt them to anybody, at least we can give them two months of love and great care that maybe they never had. So I think that's a very hard thing in rescue. I think the easy shot at rescue is if you go what we call cherry picking and you just go into the shelters and you pull all the cutesies. And that's really easy to adopt all those dogs. But I think I think it's kind of a selfish way if you could at least split it up to 50-50 as a rescue or something. But, you know, we are really big on trying to pull the ones that we don't think have a shot at getting out of that shelter. Well, when we started Katrina, because of all the dogs that had been living a happy life, um, and movement was gone. I mean, that's what where our hearts went. So we were thinking of older dogs that knew life, and now all of a sudden, is all they're doing is seeing their death ahead of them. And uh, so that was the idea, and it wasn't about puppies at all. But as it turns out, even in the parishes in the in Louisiana and all the different places where they've had floods and stuff, these dogs get loose, and 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 because people don't spay and neuter. Then they start breeding with other dogs in the parish. And so then you get all the mixed breeds and then they get rounded up and, you know, and they don't have any, um, any social skills whatsoever. And those are the ones that are going to get euthanized because they don't really have anything to sell themselves with. They've never had a chance. So in that, we end up with dogs that sometimes are one day away from whelping puppies and we don't really want to do that but we found out there's no way to avoid puppies if you're going to save the mom and so and a lot of people are very willing to just put the whole kitten caboodle to sleep 
And uh, when we get called about that sort of thing, we can't do that. So we do that. And then the other thing in picking dogs, you know, which helps us a little bit um, when we pick dogs from shelters, is that now particularly that we've grown as large as we have, we really do have to uh, keep in mind uh, the safety of everybody that works here. And so we really can't, it's not just our four hands, you know, that, that are dealing with this. And so we really have to try hard not to get something that we've already been told, you know, has a very bad past or is extremely aggressive or whatever. We, we do try to, um, cause a lot of times they're, you know, they're crate fearful or they're stir crazy or something. And if, and if one or two people tell us and convince us a little bit that this is really a good dog, it's just got to get out of here. We'll give it a chance, but we can't just randomly pick all the biggest dogs that would be, make great guard dogs because they might hurt someone. So in that, we have to be careful. The more big dogs in the house, the fewer dogs we can have. So we take some of the big dogs to our farm for a little while and let them gel there a little while. And uh, there's 21 acres fenced for dogs and then several little dog yards and houses for them, and and, um, and a lot of times they turn into great dogs, but they don't get quite the socialization they do in the house. And is it hard when you adopt them out? Is is it hard to uh, to say goodbye, or is it a yay? Uh, we're happy for their new life, or probably a little of both. I'm guessing. Yeah, it's a double edged sword. You know, your heart gets broken a lot because a lot of them we really, really get attached to, but we realize with this many dogs in the house that one-on-one home, that dog is going to get a lot more love than we can give them because we have to spread ourselves so thin with so many. And so we realize that in our head, but your heart still can hurt, you know, when they leave. We've had, I've had many times Danny fell in love with one little chihuahua in Florida that we had and he knew, you know, we had too many dogs and we couldn't keep it and it needed to get a home, but he had to get in his car and drive away when the people were going to come pick it up. So I had to adopt it to the people, but you know, we're so excited in another way that they're going to get that forever home and they're going to have that, you know, mom or dad or family that just can give them so much more love. So, so it's a double-edged sword, but our goal is to keep getting them into their forever home. You know, as as we get to know a lot of the dogs, I mean, there's some of them, um, and sometimes it's more of the smaller one, but you can just tell that there's so much more in there than what we're seeing. And they're not going to pull it out of the hat until they get with this little girl or this little boy and this family and, you know, have their own life. You know, they, they, they're, they're not the personalities to be the bright star among 15 dogs running around you in, on the floor. They're going to be the the ones that hold back and the ones that you have to make the effort to go pet and pick up because uh, they're not going to be the ones all over you. And a lot of times we realize that and we, we know their life is going to be special when they're not with us. So we really try to get the right people for that type of dogs. What is the process for choosing uh, a family or like the, uh, the vetting for lack of a better word process? I mean, we have an online application that that's the first step you fill out, which, you know, allows us to check vet references, you know, friends references, you know, if they say they have a fenced yard, we do Google Earth to make sure. 
Um, if we don't know them. If, you know, they lie to us and say their yard is fenced and Google Earth doesn't show it, that's not a good sign. <laughs> you know, be very honest on your application. You know, we want to know that they're going to give their dog heart guards so they don't get heartworms because we've treated thousands and thousands of dogs with heartworms and it's it's such a simple thing to give them a pill a month to prevent that. I mean, we have a really beautiful lab here right now that unfortunately he's eight years old and we just got him, but he's, you know, the heartworms have eaten so much of his heart that we have to do a slow kill process on him and he can get where many times where he has a hard time breathing because the heartworms literally have eaten just holes in his heart. So that's an important thing is, you know, we want them to make sure they do the proper medical needs on their dogs. But um, we're very particular, you know, on making sure it's the right match and they understand that, you know, they can't give the dog away. And, you know, we have to make sure if they have kids, you know, that we've done our best job at child testing them. Like we have a lot of kids, you know, that are help at the farm and stuff. They have kids. So we bring the kids over and they'll sit on the floor and pull on their ears, pull on their tail and make sure they're childproof. We have a very low return rate of it not working. And so we really work hard to make sure when that dog leaves here that we feel in our hearts that that really is a great match. And if we don't, if we don't know people that recommend and, and, you know, and find out that, I mean, where we really believe everything is good. Then we also, we called the veterinarians they put down that they would use and ask them how they do that, how to, you know, what, we can't ask them specific questions, but we can get a yes or no from them as far as do they bring them in regularly for their shots? And if they're older, I mean, do they get their teeth clean? Do they, you know, we want to know that it's going to go somewhere where it's going to be cared for like we would care for it. So there's a song that has been stuck in my head for the last couple of days. Uh, can you guess what it is? <laughs> I'll give you a hint. It's by Gloria Gaynor. <laughs> oh, I was right. Yes. She is very special to us. <laughs> and so how did you meet her? How did she become connected to the rescue? It's a very fascinating story. We have a, a fundraiser in Wellington, Florida during the horse shows where it's a kid's event and they do lip sync. And most people think it's, you know, going to be a very, you know, kind of honky tonk show, but these kids practice for months. They get choreographers, they, their costumes are over the top. And what each team has to do is they have to go out and raise money for Danny and Ron's rescue. And they'll do car washes, golf cart washes, lemonade stands, bake sales. They do whatever they can do. And then they go and they call people and they try to keep raising money because there's also a contest who raises the most money. So this group of girls decided that they were going to sing the song, I Will Survive. So they literally sent an email to Gloria Gaynor and explained to her that they were performing I Will Survive for Danny and Ron's Rescue. And they were trying to raise money and would she be willing to donate some money? And so she wrote them back and said, can you please send me some information on this organization? So they called me. And so I got all of our information on our organization, put a packet together and they mailed it to her. And probably about two and a half weeks later, I got a phone call about, I'll never forget. It was about seven o'clock at night. And 
it was this, you know, this person said, you know, is this Ron Danton? I said, yes, it is. She said, well, this is Gloria Gaynor. And she told me the story of what the kids had done. And she said, you know, I'm so impressed with what you guys do. And she said, I would like to come to your lip sync and perform and be one of your judges. And so we were so excited. I mean, we were just blown away. (laughs) And so, you know, she came and, you know, we did everything she asked for, her warm, warm water with lemon in it and honey and blah, 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 and all this stuff. And she came and performed. And, you know, I mean, the minute, you know, those first few chords of I Were Survived rang out, the entire room, you know, of hundreds of people were on their feet. And, you know, the beautiful thing of through this, you know, we got to spend time the day after, you know, sit with Gloria and spend a lot of time and talking. And we've developed such a beautiful relationship between her and her ma- manager, Stephanie Gold. And they've come to the doghouse, um, Gloria, when she was inducted to the Library of Congress for I Will Survive, invited us to come as her guest, and they had 6,000 people in the Library of Congress. The first concert ever given there. You know, allowed in there because of all the valuable things in there. And, you know, her last testimony, which was her last album a couple years ago, and she won the Grammy for that, and she asked us to come to her record launch in Nashville, which we went to, and She's just become such a a special person to us. And she, you know, did I Will Survive Mass during the pandemic. And she donated all the money from that to us. And some of her shirts, she donates a portion of that to us. So they have, I mean, she's just been a very special person. I mean, even when my mom was dying a couple years ago, Gloria would call and pray, you know, with me. And it's just, we're... I don't know. We're so blessed to uh, have her in our life and we've gone to a lot of her concerts and she's, uh, I don't know, been very, very special to both Danny and I. We very caring. We are, we surprised our board. We had a new executive director coming on. And so we had a introduction. Our board all flew to Florida and they got to meet her. We had a reception and then Danny and I, Gloria was in concert, maybe about 30 minutes away. So we hired a, giant limo and they didn't know where we were going and we said okay after this we're going someplace special so we went to a hotel in del rey and went to the bar and so you know we said everybody get a drink and they were like well is this what's you know this is it like whoopee (laughs) no just be patient well then gloria came down to the bar area and you know met them all and then she rode in the limo to her concert but the funny thing was the night before that danny and i picked her manager stephanie and gloria and we took them to dinner and Delray Beach has one of the largest outdoor Christmas trees in the United States. And so I know Gloria is very spiritual and loves Christmas and stuff. So we said, Gloria, do you want to go see that Christmas tree? They skate around it and all this stuff. And she said, sure. So we go there and it's so massive that you walk inside of it. It's hollow. It's hollow. Oh, wow. And so this gentleman that lets you in and stuff, he just said, you know, he said, well, he said, I'm going to tell you what everybody loves to do that, you know, put your iPhone on the floor, put it on selfie, and then all of you look over it and look above, and it's the picture's gonna the the heavens will be illuminated. So we did that, and he said, and by the way, he said in this con- outdoor concert hall tomorrow, he said, I don't know if you've heard, but Gloria Gaynor's going to be in concert there. And well, he, he said, sort of shouted like Gloria Gaynor is here. You, know, if you think this is great? Wait till tomorrow night. You know, <laughs> and so he true. said it'll be packed. You might be able to get some tickets, and so we kind of all laughed and stuff. And then Danny said, Well, sir. 
I'd like to introduce you to Gloria Gaynor. <laughs> <laughs> and he, his exact words, he screamed out, are you shitting me? <laughs> so then he starts screaming to everybody in the Christmas tree, this is Gloria Gaynor. And she looked at Danny and I, she goes, I'm going to kill you too. <laughs> you know, she had dark glasses on and she was trying to be incognito, but we're, we're so blessed to have her in our life. And we, still stay in very close contact with she and her manager, Stephanie Gold. One thing that, that was very moving to me fr from her was um, she shared a song with us before it was ever out on her testimony album, and it's called Singing Over Me. And I don't know why, but it just hit Ron and I at that time in the heart, and it, it's a beautiful song. And uh, and so when we went to the Library of Congress, and uh, you know she had it where we had passes to write up, we stayed with, hung out with her friends and all that in, the, in her dressing room, and watched her eat popcorn shrimp, and <laughs> while two people were doing her hair and all this stuff. And uh, so I asked, I said, Gloria, are you going to sing Singing Over Me? And she said, I hadn't planned on that uh, tonight, you know, in the concert. And I said, oh, I just love that one. Anyway, so then there were all these people packed around, and she didn't even know where we were, but one of the first things she did when she got on stage, and she said, I'm making one adjustment to my concert tonight. I have two very special friends here. And they requested I sing this song. So Danny and Ron, this is for you. And of course, there go the tears. <laughs> but, but it was beautiful. But it was so sweet. She didn't have to do that at all, you know. And we weren't really asking her to. It was just a gesture. And that's the kind of lady she really is. The last last November, she was in concert in Wilmington, North Carolina, and that's where Danny's family lives. And so we took them all to, to see Gloria and. Um, because of the pandemic, they really didn't want to allow meet and greets, you know, where you could do meet and greets. And she, you know, we wanted the family to meet her and stuff. And so we met him in the covered garage where she parked her car <laughs> and um, did a meet and greet. And then, you know, when she started after about her second song, she just said, I just want to tell you all, I have two special friends that mean so much to me that are here tonight at the concert. So she said, Danny and Ron, you know, I'm so glad you're here. I mean, she just... She's just very special to us, you know. Well, I felt like you couldn't have a better song for a rescue dog or no. for you guys after reading this book, like, of I Will Survive. Like, it was it's like the perfect anthem. <laughs> yeah. And so I think a lot of us first came to, to know of you guys and of your work through the documentary Life in the Doghouse. Uh, do you just want to tell us a little bit about how that came to be? And I, it sounds like that was a real, a real game changer for you also. Yeah. Life in the Doghouse changed the whole dynamics of Danny and Ron's rescue because we were struggling financially so badly then. And Ron Davis, who was the movie director, he came to look at some dogs in Wellington. Well, he he's used to be in horses years ago, and then so down there, and he was talking about dogs with some of the horse people, and they just said, "Well, you need to go see Dan Danny and Ron. You probably know them," and which he didn't really. And uh, but so he said, "Everybody tells me I need to come to your, you know, to see what you have." So that's how he he showed up. So he came to the house, and he wound up. He never was a Chihuahua person, but he fell in love with Little Man, this little Chihuahua, and he never thought he would have a Chihuahua. So when he was walking out the front door, he turned around and he said, well, so nice meeting you, gentlemen. He said, by the way, you're going to be my next documentary. And we, we didn't know. You know, we just laughed and shut the door and never thought about it. 
And then he just kept calling and calling and calling and said, can you go to dinner and let's talk about this? And, you know, he wanted to do the documentary. And we're like, look, you know, we get up, we feed dogs, we take care of dogs. We're, we're not that interesting, you know. I, I said I said to Ron, I said, how many freaking times does he want to watch us feed dogs in the morning? That's all we do that's interesting. <laughs> you know, but anyway, Ron, you know, is a very smart movie director. And I mean, we did, it, it took a long time to film it because he followed us all over the country. And a lot of it didn't even get in there. Uh, we went to the flood zones in Louisiana and rode on fire trucks and all that stuff. And that didn't even make it in because the documentary has to be under 90 minutes. But he really touched, I think, in a beautiful way on what we do and, you know, what our life is about. I think forever home, you know, I think life in the doghouse is kind of an overview of what we do. And I think forever home, we go a lot more into depth of who we are and sharing more personal stories and our lives and stuff. Cause it just wasn't time to get into that, but the movie really changed us. I mean, it was, you know, we were in the top 100 viewed on Netflix. Um, it was seen in over 50 <coughs> countries. We had so many people, you know, that all of a sudden just figured out who we are and we started receiving donations and, you know, the movie just put us into a whole different dynamic where now, you know, we have an elderly program. We help elderly people keep their pets and we have a veterans program. We help them keep their pets. We have a handicap program. We have an outreach <clears throat> program um, where we assist people that can't afford medical needs on their dogs. So that all, you know, came into play. We do a lot of free spay neuter for people. And that's really uh, kudos to Ron Davis and Life in the Doghouse. Well, we, we certainly couldn't have stomached through the book if we hadn't had to stomach through Ron Davis. Um, he'd have each one of us upstairs in this little room where we are right now, uh, but individually. So I didn't get to hear what he was saying. And he didn't get to hear what I was saying. And he probed and dug and put knives in and <laughs> we'd try, we'd, you know, do all this. And then, you know, we'd be physically and mentally exhausted by the time we'd finished with just, you know, so many of the interviews. And then a, a few of the stuff, a uh, few of the things were together, you know, we were together with. But we, but, you know, nothing was shared with us about all that he was recording and and doing. So we, we didn't have a clue what the movie was going to be about. I mean, or what the storyline was. We figured everything that's documented has to have a beginning to an end. We had no clue how it was going to play out. And he was nice enough uh, when he did his first showing of it to say, you know, I rented the theater for the day before so you can see it, so you're just not taken by storm. And, uh, and we were, you know, we invited a few people that we knew well enough to be with us to do that. But um, thank goodness he did. Because <laughs> I don't think we could have done it on our own without having seen it at least once. It's a it's really beautiful, and uh, I'm, I hope everybody gets a chance to see it. I'll make sure I have a link in the show note for everybody for where they they can see it now. Uh, it's an excellent compliment to the book, but yeah, the book does share so much more in depth and and personal and varied stories. And you know, like I said, you guys have you have been through it. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I guess that was one of the things, you know, you started to touch on how you've been able to expand your programs and and even just give to other uh, situations as well. Like I, I was reading about like, 
you know, when there was the Australia wildfires and, you know, the, the helping with the koalas and the World War II veteran who couldn't get up and down his stairs anymore. So you hired a dog walker so that, that you know, he could help keep his dog. And a lot of the volunteer work that I personally do is focused on providing assistance to keep pets in their homes and with families by providing vet care and, and things like that. So anytime I see people doing that kind of work, my heart just explodes. And the other thing that, that struck me was about your connection with Aruba and the the dogs in Aruba. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, Aruba is, uh, you know, a desert island. Um, so it's very difficult for the strays because they only get about four to five inches of rain a year. So they have to drink salt water, which is very unhealthy. They're called Kanuku dogs, which means beach dog, and they kill about 8,000 a year on the island. So we do a lot of free spay-neuter on the island. Um, we bring lots of medical supplies down. We go down there every year, and we help Natalia, which runs New Life for Paws, and uh, we take her to their, it's called Price Mart, which is like our Costco or Sam's Club, and you know, we get about $9,000 worth of supplies for her, and they have to deliver them to her home. It's but, pretty much a year's supply of, of um, for the amount of animals she can keep in her house and try to keep moving to the States. Wow. And so she can't, she can't keep that amount of dog food in her house because rats will come in and all of that. So uh, they, she actually, we have it worked out now where, you know, just by holding a little certificate, Whenever she needs to get stuff from there, from the store, the dog food and supplies and stuff, she can go and they just, they'll load her up, but she doesn't have to pay for it when she goes. So, because she has just no means of income whatsoever. She just does this out of love for the animals. And then we always fly dogs back with us, you know, some Kanuku dogs back with us. So it's, uh, I don't know, just another way we can reach out and help things. I mean, we're real proud this year too. We, have donated over $80,000 at the Romanian and Polish border and into the Ukraine, um, gotten cat food and dog food. So we're real proud that we've been able to help the Ukrainians, all the people coming over the borders, carrying their cats and dogs and had no food for them. So that's amazing. Why thing that way, but we're, I don't know. We love doing outreach and we love telling kids about, you know, the, while they're on this earth, you know, it's time to give back, you know, during the pandemic, we couldn't have our lip sync, which the kids were very sad, but we did a beach cleanup in Palm Beach and we went and picked up trash on the beach. And, you know, Danny and I really feel it's, it's so important for these kids to learn in this world that we're not here to take, we're here to give. And, you know, we did four children's books that came out this year for Simon and Schuster that are called Life in the Doghouse series. And, you know, the kids really have enjoyed that because they're, they're illustrated and it's got a story, but in there is a lot of important facts about spay neuter, about training your dogs, everything like that. So it's, it's educational for the kids also. Well, they're, they're all books of acceptance, um, of, of trying to open children's minds. And, you know, even if their parents aren't open-minded, it helps encourage them to be in it, you know, appreciate uh, people with physical problems, mental problems, um, by using the dogs and see, you know, telling the stories through the dog's eyes rather than, rather than just a narration. And, um, and so it allows the kids to, 
to um, to see what this is really about and relate it to their own lives. And uh, you know, being the the worst player on a team from you know you name it, it's it's a um, and and uh, interracial parents and military where they have to move and move and they don't ever feel they fit in. And uh, that was my husband. <laughs> letting but letting the dogs that you know that have also been bounced around um, relate to it. And uh, and making mistakes and then owning up to them and figuring out how to fix it and make life better. So they're they're cute stories and uh, well, I think well worth children's read. It's for young kids, but what read it not uh, seven to like twelve. But every adult, I mean, has come to us and read the book, and even the adults love reading them. Oh, that's wonderful. I'll make sure we have a link to those as well because yeah, right. I know so many people are gonna be excited for that. And each each of the stories and it is about some of the dogs that we've had in the rescue and in the back it tells the true story even though the you know the books are fiction entirely but it does tell the true story and why those were the dogs chosen our fourth one comes out in february and it's a little dog we had huckleberry that was left at a dumpster uh, in a cardboard box in 90 95 degree weather and people had i guess he had hurt his leg so they took electrical tape and wrapped his hind leg and they wrapped it so tight and luckily one of the girls was going out to throw trash out and saw the box moving but we had to amputate huckleberry's hind leg and so it's a little fictional story he gets adopted with a three-legged cat so i mean we did that to try to teach people with physical disabilities or whatever you know love still goes on life still goes on so and ironically we've had Three or four dogs that that ended up being, I guess we call them tripods, <laughs> um, but uh, they've actually been adopted by people who are amputees. Oh wow! And uh, because they know what that means, and it's, I mean, it's nothing. You know, we would never have the nerve to want to try to say, "Well, you need this one," <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, by any means. But it, it is so funny how, you know, how the how the pain of it all and the hurt from it all goes right into thinking, this dog needs me, and I need right. him. We've had a lot of wheelchair dogs that we have that have to have wheelchairs because they're paralyzed behind, and a lot of people that are in wheelchairs themselves have adopted the wheelchair dogs. So that's neat. That's amazing. I just have to tell you, I'm, I'm so grateful for, for your time today. I just wish everyone could live their lives with as much love in their hearts as you have, and just thank you for sharing all of that with us. You know, if we can all lead with our hearts, there could be endless good in the world. And, and you guys are such beautiful examples of that. And, and I appreciate your time and, and your willingness to share with us. Well, thank you for having us. We're thank glad you to so be much. Here. It was fun. Okay, I just had to play that. We're only legally allowed to play 15 seconds of any song, but I couldn't not play that song or that specific line from that song because the whole thing about I've got all my life to live and all my love to give, I will survive. I mean, I just think of my dog Penny, right? Like my friend Mindy and I literally found Penny in an alley. She was skinny and had clearly given birth to puppies at some point in the not-too-distant past. And she was, like, missing half her fur and covered in scabs from all the flea bites. 
But here we are seven years later, and I'm so grateful every single day of my life that my husband and I get to be the ones who are the recipients of all the love that Penny has to give. And that just means everything to us. I really think you'll enjoy this book, Forever Home. I think you'll enjoy just how vulnerable and raw at times Danny and Ron share about their lives, about how animals have helped them through these hard times. And, you know, I I meant what I said to them that it's so universal amongst all of us. You know, maybe some of these problems might look different in your life than it did in theirs. But, you know, at the same time, we've all experienced, you know, hurt and loss and trauma and grief. And, and we've been so grateful to have these animals by our sides to help us through it. And they've just taken this incredible platform that they have created to help not only the thousands and thousands of dogs that have come through their rescue, but all these other people in the world, all these other causes and organizations from Ukraine to Australia to Aruba. I mean, the generous hearts of these men just has no limits. And I'm so blown away. And it, it was such a gift to to be able to read about their experiences, to read about how their lives have been touched by all these different people and organizations and lives. And it really does just give me so much hope that there's all these people out there in the world who are doing good and all these other people who are supporting them. And and that's what I try to hold in my heart when I <laughs> am getting uh, beaten down by election season. <laughs> So make sure you check all the links in the show notes where you can buy the book Forever Home. It's out now where you can watch Life in the Doghouse, the documentary, where you can get the children's books. I didn't even know about the children's books. I mean, it's amazing all that they are doing. Make sure you follow Danny and Ron's Rescue on social media so you can see all the different amazing things that they're up to. So that'll do it for this episode of the Believe in Dog podcast. If you like this episode, remember that you can always leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's pretty much the biggest compliment that you can give a podcaster. Remember, you can always find me on Instagram at Believe in Dog Podcast with underscores or on Facebook at Believe in Dog Podcast. So until next time, this is Erin Scott sending you hugs and belly rubs. Believe in Dog Podcast is a production of Hugs and Belly Rubs, LLC.